Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest in today's episode is Mimi Fawaz of the BBC, previewing the Africa Cup of Nations. Before we get going, we're about to start a World Cup year, and you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including 13 magazine-style stories in our first three months, and lots of free posts as well. That's grantwall.com to get my posts in your email inbox the second they go out. Gift subscriptions are also available. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. In segment one today, Chris Whittingham and I will look back at our biggest stories of 2021. Segment two is our interview. And then Witty comes back in segment three with our predictions for 2022. Let's bring in Chris. Thanks for joining me, man. How are you? I come armed with sound effects. We're ready to do some <laughs> top five lists. When you told me the topic, I was like, I'm ready to go. So fired up looking back on a year in review. Yeah, let's look at 2021 in reverse here. A couple of things. Uh, I've got five stories that stood mm -hmm. out the most to me. You cracked the whip on me and said I could only name five. Mm -hmm. And I, and, I, and you, got, you got to go from five to one. So we'll go one by one, five to one. Let, let's start with number five. You're totally making it difficult for me. I didn't have them in order, but I'm going to just like do this on the fly right now. I'm going to say number five is the U.S. women's national team disappointing at the Olympics. I fully... Oh, you're supposed to do the sound Yeah, effect. I'm supposed to play the sound. I lay out for the sound. There we go. Go on. It doesn't seem like the right sound for the topic, but uh, you know, uh, disappointing for the U.S. women's national team is getting a bronze medal, which isn't disappointing for a lot of folks, and everything is relative, right? So I think for me, it was less about the medal than the performances. Uh, I, I just felt like uh, this was a team that from the 3-0 loss to start the tournament against Sweden just didn't perform well and and maybe even performed at a, a lower level than getting a medal but they ended up getting it got a big performance from uh, Carly Lloyd and Megan Rapino two goals each in the 4-3 bronze medal uh, win against Australia but uh, not nearly the team that we saw winning the 2019 World Cup and so the storyline will be trying to bounce back from that with some younger players maybe moving forward here. So that was number five for me. Number four is the European Super League fiasco. And this was a really fascinating storyline. It only lasted for two days. But if you think about it in retrospect, it's pretty incredible what was at stake here. This was a complete change in how European soccer, club soccer, was set up. 15 clubs deciding that we are going to form our own Super League that we cannot be relegated from, and we'll let in a couple of teams each year, and this will become the highest level of European soccer. They totally underestimated the reaction that would come, especially from fans in England, and very quickly this was discarded once several of the English clubs backed out. But it's going to be an ongoing story, I think, just because the issues that caused the Super League to be declared really haven't gone away uh, in terms of financial yeah. 
stuff. And so I, I think that uh, we may see the return of this proposal before too long. Yeah, it's fascinating to me the number of different things that played out over the course, as you said, of 48 hours. I remember as being the opening day of the MLS season or the opening weekend because I remember being at Inter Miami home with LA Galaxy and like you just see, you know, the the statements that went out from all the clubs one after the other we're joining we're joining we're joining the only big clubs i think that weren't a part of it big clubs are Bayern Munich and Paris Saint-Germain and it goes to show number 1 the power of fans and the power of voices and i think that probably has not been tapped to enough since when you think about some of the things that have been discussed. Like, the power of fans did not shout down the World Cup every two years idea, although I'm spoiling one of my top five stories of the year. Uh, so, like, I, I do think that there's so many things at play here. Number two, the idea that these incredibly powerful entities, these huge clubs that they say are responsible for all of the interest in worldwide you know, like the, the worldwide interest in the game, that in America, there are not fans of Burnley, there are fans of Chelsea, there are fans of Manchester United, Manchester City, that these big clubs, in their minds, are responsible for the interest in football around the world, and yet, even they, who have gained so much power over the course of the last 10 years, had to cow to public pressure, had to fend off protests in the outside their own stadiums. Think about what happened with Chelsea, where they their fans wouldn't let in their own team into the stadium from a bus that's attached to the ground because they're so against this idea. The idea that the fans spoke in such a way to diminish the power of these vastly powerful, rich entities that normally have the FU money to ward off any public criticism. The fact that they backed down after 48 hours uh, it is insane. So, you're right. The underlying issues are still there. The pandemic, uh, the issues with revenue, and some of these clubs losing their power. You think about what's happening to Juve and Barcelona this season. They need a, an influx of cash. This was their hope. And so there's a lot of dynamics to the play. And I also don't think that the clubs have paid nearly enough of a price for having done this. You said it's an ongoing story, but we still talk about these clubs every week as if nothing happened, as if this was, you know, just a figment of their imagination. It, it went by. I don't think that this is talked about enough in the context of, hey, you guys tried to leave. All the, the Premier League and the Champions League, all these things we talk about every week, you guys tried to form your own thing. And it's crazy to me that we don't even talk about it in that way. I'm totally with you on that. It's pretty wild when you look back at the footage, even from the Manchester United Liverpool game that got canceled, and you had people storming the field, mm -hmm. getting into the stadium at Man United, and, and it was just an incredible story. And I do think it's worthwhile to ask the question, why was that something that got shut down when we're not seeing anyone talk about boycotting the Qatar World Cup or, or doing any mm -hmm. of these other things, you know, why that particular thing? Uh, and, I, and I think that's a fascinating question to ask. Let's go to number three as I go through my list of five here that I hadn't numbered before you brought up that I had to go from <laughs> five to one. And I'm going to say Italy's feast and famine year in the sense of, and probably with an emphasis on fees, because I really enjoyed watching their win at the Euros this summer. An Italy team that, a little bit like the 2006 Italy World Cup champions, nobody really picked to win this tournament beforehand, and they were just absolutely terrific, beating England in the final, in Wembley, uh, on penalties at least, and, uh, and really exceeding expectations in every possible way under Roberto Mancini. 
just uh, I had so much fun watching the Euros down the street at my my soccer bar this summer, Smithfield, getting together with friends, and it was like the first like big like regular social thing I did in a long time given the pandemic. So really enjoyed that. Now there's also the famine side of this with Italy because. In World Cup qualifying, they are in danger of not qualifying again for the World Cup for the second straight time. They're going to have to go into a playoff, and Portugal and Turkey, by the way, are in that uh, group of four that only one team is going to go to the World Cup. Uh, and Italy put themselves in a really bad position here. Jorginho could have converted a penalty uh, in a World Cup qualifier late in the game to send them to the World Cup. Didn't do it. And here they are, European champion, may not make the World Cup. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can view so much of this last year in European football through the prism of Jorginho penalties <laughs> in, terms yeah. of, in terms of him making them to win the Euros, in terms of him making them in the road to Chelsea, winning the Champions League. Uh, you voted on the Guardian panel that has him as the fifth best player in the world. And then also uh, him missing the penalty on that last day of World Cup qualifying that ultimately is the reason why they didn't qualify automatically. And I believe Switzerland did. So it was... A remarkable year for Italy, and I, I can't stress enough just, and, and from the opening day, because they played the first game of the tournament, and that was like their statement of intent, like, oh no, this Italian team is much different than you remember. I, I who, who did they play? Was it Turkey that they played on that day? I think so. And they absolutely ripped them apart from minute one. It's like, wow, this is not your grandfather's Italy. And, and they go on and play an unbelievable tournament. They spoil the party of the home Euros for England, and more desperation for them also, I haven't played the sound yet. <laughs> Number two. I'm terrible at giving you the opportunity to play your sound. And, and to be honest here, by the way, number two, probably not worth the sound. Uh, it's the NWSL turmoil, which we talked about with the terrific reporters, Molly Hensley Clancy of the Washington Post and Meg Linehan of The Athletic uh, in an episode right after these stories came out that they broke and you know they had sexually abusive coaches like Paul Riley the story in the athletic by by Meg Lenahan was just a a really well reported exposé about what Riley did according to Sinead Fairley and in, in Mana Shim saying that he had sexually coerced them and and then with the Washington spirit you had several things that Molly Hensley Clancy reported, including abusive coaches in a system that was running the Washington spirit that allowed that to happen. And so a lot of this was about the failure to protect players. And it became uh, a huge story, as it should have. It led to the commissioner, Lisa Baird, of the NWSL resigning. Uh, it's led to several ongoing investigations, including one by U.S. Soccer, by uh, led by Sally Yates. And we'll see where it goes from here because the investigations will potentially reveal new things that could cause more people to to lose their jobs. And you hope that the NWSL is is moving in the right direction. You know, there's good things happening on the field in this league. There's teams that are coming into the league next year. But this was a reckoning that needed to happen and did happen. And you left out a couple of people and organizations as well. You have the Red Stars with Rory Dames. They made the final of NWSL and he left the next day, uh, which, uh, you know, that probably hasn't, you know, that the reporting on that probably hasn't fully come in. And then you also have, 
you know, Portland, Paul Riley is no longer there, but he was there. Uh, Their general manager is forced to step down. And now there's a new regime there, which I I think is a step in the right direction. But yeah, this touched the entire league. And it it also kind of made the league structure come into question a little bit, which I think is hopefully, you know, we're not just talking about these individual incidents. We're talking about, as you mentioned, protecting the players and also just frankly, better people being involved in the women's game and not abusive characters that uh, seem to fill the league. And, you know, I, I solicited, you know, Twitter questions one day on, you know, Hey, why is this happening? Why is, why do so many of the teams in this league have issues? And it, it's a lot bigger than the NWSL. It's even a lot bigger than women's sports. It's anytime men interact with women in the workplace, this is a much bigger thing, but at the very least at this level, Hopefully the league can work towards getting better people in charge of their organizations and not success at any cost, which appeared to be the Paul Riley way. I do want to highlight the Washington Spirit, who on the field ended up winning the title in the league amid all sorts of stuff happening at their club, basically all season long. Richie Burke, the coach, being pushed out. Uh, the investigation into him, but also the ownership situation with Steve Baldwin, which is ongoing still right now, where now he's facing potential legal action, according to the Washington Post, from his other investors, owners on the team, because he appears to be completely unwilling to sell the team to Michelle Kang, one of the owners, for $10 million more than the next best bid. It's absolutely wild. And yet this team, with Trinity Robin being fantastic in the final, and she's a star waiting to happen, uh, ends up winning the league title. So uh, huge congrats to the players on the Washington Spirit for what they did. Let's go to number one, Chris. And you might be able to pull out the uh, the musical fanfare again for this one. Number one, the U.S. men's national team dominates Mexico, beating them three times in three games and is on track for the World Cup. And the U.S. men's national team needed a good year, and they got one because there was so much hanging over this program ever since they failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup. And fans are still wildly extreme over the top (laughs) in their responses to every little thing that happens with the U.S. men's national team. But look, the whole point of World Cup qualifying is to qualify for the World Cup. The U.S. is on track to qualify for the World Cup. We'll see what happens in these last six qualifiers coming up, but they're in position to do that. And that is a credit to Greg Berhalter, the coach who got... Three wins against Mexico, first in the Nations League final in June. Christian Pulisic with the late penalty. Ethan Horvath, what happened to that guy with the big <laughs> late penalty save? <laughs> Only that to disappear from the team. And then the U.S. again with a B team in the Gold Cup, beating Mexico in the final. Late goal there by Miles Robinson in extra time on the set piece. And then probably the biggest night of the year, I think, in American soccer in Cincinnati, the U.S. beating Mexico, Dos Acero, in World Cup qualifying goals by Christian Pulisic and Weston McKenney, and just a truly terrific performance in the second half of that game for the U.S. No doubt. I mean, that that Mexico game, I, I mean, I'm going to say it's going to live on in the memory because I was there, but another Dos Acero <laughs> and that rivalry. And honestly, one of the things we talked about in the build-up to that game is that it might be the last game between these two teams that carries that kind of weight 
unless they play in the World Cup uh, in 22, 26, or in the the qualifying cycle for 30. But, I mean, if CONCACAF gets two or three more places in the 30 World Cup because it's a 48-team World Cup, or maybe by then it'll be a 96-team World Cup if Infantino (laughs) has his way. But, uh, you know, I I do think that this is a really significant game in this rivalry. You saw Christian Pulisic score a goal. You also had that man-in-the-mirror storyline, which was massive. So, yeah, I mean, going into that game, I wouldn't say there was pressure on the U.S. just because I'm not sure that there was a real expectation that they get all three points. But certainly as the game wore on, you saw how well the U.S. was playing. It was a deserved performance. It's the best performance of the Berhalter era. It's the best performance that we've seen from a lot of guys in the national team and without Christian Pulisic starting. So that was a a huge step in every way and well worth that number one spot. Are you ready for my top five? Do you have a five? I've got all five. I'm ready to go. I got five yes. stories in 2022, uh, 2021, and predictions for 2022. We'll get to those later. All right. Number five, late entry, but the return of COVID as a big player in the world of football. <laughs> And we've seen all kinds of... I mean, yeah, that fanfare with COVID probably doesn't go. But <laughs> listen, I, I'm, I'm consistent. I have to play the sound for everyone. Uh, so, uh, I mean, we, we've seen a lot of cancellations, you know, all, like over the course of the festive period. I actually was planning on going on vacation to London and seeing a bunch of games. Had to cancel it. So... You're seeing games behind closed doors. You're seeing that fixture congestion pile up again. You're seeing all the same things that we saw in March of 2020, except there is much more of a willingness to go on. We know how to carry on throughout the virus, although I'm sure uh, Dr. Gounder would not approve of some of the things that have happened, some of the full stadiums that remain throughout not just Europe, but throughout the world. COVID's playing a role, and I'm actually really curious to see, you know, we're not far away from the start of training camp in in MLS, given the number of COVID positives that we've seen in American sports leagues, uh, in the NFL, even amongst vaccinated players, in the the NBA has been a farce over the course of the last couple weeks with the cancellations and the players that have gotten out onto the field. I'll be curious when MLS comes back how much COVID affects things there. Well, you're you're not feeling the festive fixtures then, is what you're saying, Chris? <laughs> yeah, uh, they, they they promised forty games, and uh, they unfortunately were not able were not able to deliver those. Look, I'm still watching them, and I'm enjoying it, and I'm, I'm enjoying what we what we do get. But there's no doubt it's playing a role. Definitely is, and I'm sorry you couldn't take your trip. By the way, that really stinks. Yeah. But um, you know, I I look at what's happening, and actually the Philadelphia Union and what happened to them with COVID in yeah. with the birth in the MLS final biggest game in in club history and they were missing basically their entire team due to covid that stinks man like it it really has cast a pall on things recently as well and you know like some of the other things we're talking about it's an ongoing story yeah if if philly has their full complement of players it could have been them lifting mls call that's a great shout and uh, it's just one of those unfortunate things that like unfortunately these competitions are no longer 100% about the sporting merit of the competition. It's about who's available, when you play. And in some ways, over the course of this period, the title was decided, at least somewhat in part, because Chelsea is asked to get out there with, you know, 12 of their fit available senior players at Wolves. They drop points. They've not been the same team over the course of the last couple weeks. And I think you can't help but figure that that COVID has played a role. All right, number four, the year of Canada. A shout to our friends north of the border. What a year, soccer-wise, for them. It's crazy when winning a gold medal in the women's game is like, it's it's competitive. I still think that's number one because it's a major achievement for Canada in a sport that they've been really good at, just have not gotten over the hump and won a trophy uh, in, in terms of either the Olympics or 
the World Cup. But winning the Olympic gold, amazing for them. But then you look at what the men's team did. The men's team is the one that doesn't have any reputation, that needed a change in format just to get into an eight-team World Cup qualification as opposed to a six-team World Cup qualification. They were trying their best. They got in. They beat Haiti. And then you're thinking, well, you know, they'll give it a go. But, you know, you'd still probably favor the other teams to get through. And then at the end of eight rounds, they top the thing. They, you know, get a, a draw against against the United States away from home. That was their first statement of intent, getting a point and leaving their fans frustrated, which in retrospect, probably shouldn't have been that frustrated. Canada's good. And then getting points two times against Mexico, a point at the Azteca, which I imagine was a huge win for them, and then beating them at home in those snowy conditions and really putting Mexico under a ton of pressure. John Herdman, all credit to him. What a year for the Canadians in soccer. Give another fanfare, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yes! They deserve it. They deserve it, the Canadians. Well done. Bravo on 2021. Nice work, Canada. I'm really looking forward to going up there for the game uh, next month. Uh, the qualifier, Canada, U.S. men's You're national looking forward team. to being in Canada in January? I could say I'm looking forward to being in Minneapolis right after that uh, for a qualifier. But, um, you know, like, it's it's really fun to watch this team. It's cool to see how excited their fans are. And their women's team, just winning the gold medal, like you said, uh, absolutely incredible under Bev Priestman. And... Something up there in the water this past year, but Canada, like if you were going to have a fake SB award type situation, that is my country of the year in world soccer. All right, number three, Gianni Infantino and Arsene Wenger floating a World <laughs> Cup every two years. And I have to imagine <laughs> that this is the story that plays the most, uh, or that it kind of portends the most going forward because they're going to use all their political might to try and push this through. FIFA is going to want to make some money, and it really comes down to what happens in, frankly, the voting blocks that are not the major soccer superpowers. What happens in Asia? What happens in CONCACAF? What happens in Africa? A lot of these continents get their equal voting power as England and Spain and Italy and Germany and France and all the homes of the top five leagues, and you would presume that they'll appreciate the extra money. So I'm really fascinated to see the political dynamic there, whether or not, again, fan support, as happened with the Super League, can get this turned around. But this is not one that's going away, and this was not an idea that was just floated out there. This probably is a big part of Gianni Infantino's political plan to help grow the financial coffers of FIFA. You know, if this does come down to a vote, I think if it comes down to a majority vote, the votes are there to force this thing through. Those votes coming from Asia, especially Africa, and CONCACAF because there's a lot of numbers in those votes but I think the opposing force here is will UEFA in particular but maybe even South America will those countries just basically say if you do this we won't play in it and and if they hold to it because you can't play a World Cup without Europe and South America and also what happens if there's a players union that gets involved and says hey you know, we, we want we want to turn this around. All right, my number two, it's in the realm of the U.S. men's national team, but I think you picked the wrong game that was most important. U.S. men's national team four, Honduras one. <laughs> and I know that sounds ridiculous. I know beating Mexico is more important. However, think about what happened at halftime of that game. Greg Berhalter was fired, not actually, but proverbially by the fans. He was under immense pressure. We 
I'd seen a U.S. team that for five and a half games could not find a striker that could help at all was after five and a half or two and a half. I, I forget the, the, the revisionist history, whatever. The point is, is that couldn't find a striker to save our lives. Then you have Weston McKenney, who is out because of his breaking of COVID protocols. The number of narratives that are squeezed on the U.S. You're one nil down. You've been thoroughly outplayed at Honduras. And then you come out and pull off this performance that has completely changed the narrative around the U.S. men's national team. It's stunning what happened after that game. You know, Ricardo Pepe is the the striker of the future. Greg Berhalter's fine. It's good for Weston McKennie to come back into camp. You have these heroic performances from players like Sebastian Legette, who put in a good second half in that game. You think about all the different ways that the fortunes of the U.S. men's national team turn on the basis of that one game. And if you go back and have the butterfly effect moment of, well, what happens if they end up losing that game? What happens if they put in a second 45 minutes like they put in the first 45 minutes. I don't think you can understate how big that game was for the future trajectory of this program. You're definitely right in the sense that this was a turning point game for the U.S.'s World Cup qualifying campaign, and it would have gotten very, very ugly if the U.S. had lost that game. It's amazing, though, when you look at the second half. I was in that stadium, and to go from the vibe of at halftime, this is a monster disaster for the U.S. Greg Berhalter may lose his job to the mood at the end of the game, which was I was having to dodge fans throwing stuff at their own team in the stadium as I was trying to get to the postgame situation. It was pretty incredible. But like also incredible was just how physically like cardio wise the honduran players just died in the second <laughs> half of that game it was like they couldn't move it was, it was like they were running in sand and the u.s was not in the second half and also moving tyler adams to central midfield i will maintain tyler adams should never play right back ever again for the united states i thought that made a big difference too in the second half but just a, a massive game in terms of turning things around in, in giving, you know, putting the U.S. in a position where we could say now they're on track to qualify for the World Cup. And number one, I said to you before the podcast, you left an open goal for me because I got a sneak preview of your list. Number one, Lionel Messi leaves Barcelona. <laughs> I mean, this is the greatest player in the world leaving the club of his boyhood to go to Paris Saint-Germain because Barcelona ran out of money. That's what he wanted to come back. They did enough to convince him. They just ran out of money. They couldn't pay him. This club that is such a giant, that is inextricably linked with Lionel Messi, couldn't find the money in their coffers to bring him back. It's flabbergasting and it, it's actually kind of remarkable how little he's done in Paris like he's had a couple of decent games but his scoring record is not the same he's struggled to adjust a little bit and it's kind of amazing how much he's kind of gone off the soccer globe a little bit mostly because playing in France is just you're not going to get the kind of attention but yeah I mean mess they ran out of money for Messi they couldn't pay him this podcast will be available by Bureaufax as well <laughs> In case you're interested. I just wanted to say the word bureau facts. Uh, not because not of, nearly enough bureau facts in the world and <laughs> football. <laughs> you're right, though. I mean, just an, an immense moment in 
sort of this era of the game to envision Lionel Messi playing for a club other than Barcelona, it's still very strange for me. Uh, it might even be strange for him at this point. I do want to give Messi some credit, by the way, for winning a major tr- title this summer with Argentina. And another Ballon d'Or as well. Yeah, because not having won a major title with Argentina, I, I understand it's not the World Cup, but the Copa America is a big deal, even if it's played every year now. Or seems like it is. <laughs> and I enjoyed watching that game and seeing how Messi responded afterward. He seems like a guy who, like, when he goes back to Argentina, is just a little calmer than he used to be. Uh, there was a, a fun clip this week on social media back in Rosario. He and his wife were, like, attending some, I don't know, concert and, and singing bad Argentine pop music songs <laughs> together. But they seem to really be enjoying themselves. So um, I felt good for him and them. But yeah, it's got to be strange for him not to be playing at Barcelona. It's still strange for me to watch Barcelona without him. He's the only European footballer that's not in Miami right now. I see all of them on Instagram. <laughs> They're all in Miami. Every single one of them. I bumped into three today on the walk to my car. <laughs> it is strange. Um, he loves Miami, man. It's crazy. I still think we should have a beat reporter. Might, maybe it's something you should consider, Chris, a beat reporter in Miami to follow the comings and goings of European soccer players on their breaks. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for the challenge. If <laughs> I, maybe I, I don't know what I need to do. I probably need to like talk to some club promoters or something like that. But <laughs> I, I'm, I think I'm going to make this my mission in 2022 during the summer, <laughs> during the summer, during vacation time, I'm going to make some calls. I'm going to find out where some of these people are. Maybe get them on football with Grant Wall. Maybe this is the guest booking opportunity that we've been waiting for. This is the key. You will become the Fabrizio Romano of <laughs> Miami sightings of European soccer players. I can't wait for this. All right, Chris, many thanks. We'll have you back in segment three. Now, here's my interview with Mimi Fawaz. One of my favorite tournaments, the Africa Cup of Nations, starts January 9th in Cameroon and will be shown on Bein Sports here in the United States. I'm thrilled to welcome the journalist who co-hosted the draw for this year's AFCON, Mimi Fawaz is a broadcaster for the BBC with a Nigerian background who has a long history covering African soccer. Mimi, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Grant, for having me. It's a pleasure. I've been a fan of your work for a long time, so I'm really looking forward to be joining on your podcast today. Thank you. I'm a fan of your work as well. Um, As with other tournaments, COVID has kept us waiting a year longer Mm -hmm. than originally planned for this AFCON to start. But it's finally here. Some of the world's best players will be involved. What is the significance of this tournament to its fans in terms of both its history and its present? Yeah, the Africa Cup of Nations is a beloved tournament on the continent for for many fans. Um, Big stars, as I'm sure you've known throughout the years, have played at the Africa Cup of Nations, including the newer stars, the newer generation of stars that we see um, as well playing nowadays, the Mohamed Salahs, um, the Pierre-Emerick, Aubameyang, the Riyad Mahrez, and et cetera. So for a a lot of fans, they, they look forward to seeing their nations represented, their countries represented, 
presented on such a big platform and as well some big African stars playing, you know, having the low dribbling skills that they can see on display. And as well, it, it brings out, you know, new generation of footballers, new talents that could possibly emerge from that as well. But, you know, I've covered a few African Cup of Nations so far and the fans are just fantastic that you come across. You see how much it means for them watching their, their countries perform and they bring so much color to the Africa Cup of Nations. I've covered one Africa Cup of Nations on site in Angola in 2010 and, and oh. it was one of the coolest events I've ever covered in my career really and and just to see the the teams playing the support I did mm. tell Didier Drogba because I went there to interview him <laughs> that I came a long way to interview you pal and he was like of course so, so he sat down and gave me this wonderful interview and 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 uh it's just I had such a great experience hope to cover more yeah. in the future uh yeah. so this this is totally a, a pro afcon zone here on this podcast <laughs> so Honestly, I really don't have time for complaints that we hear about it taking place during the European club season. I feel like that's a very Eurocentric view. FIFA has always approved this time window for the tournament, but yeah. is it is it possible to explain why the AFCON decided to make a, a change for this tournament? Because it did take place for the first time in June and July, the last time in 2019. Yeah. Now it's going back to January, February. Mm. Yeah, so in 20, 2019, it was held in Egypt. Who stepped in? Um, um, they weren't meant to to host at that time. It was meant to be Cameroon, but they stepped in uh, last minute, I guess, to to host the Africa Cup of Nations six months six months before the executive committee had decided. They just made their official statement was that they just decided for it to move in the summer, uh, as as you've mentioned, and expanding it from a sixteen to 2014 tournament. Of course, when you look at it, it favored the European clubs because it was during the break. Um, so you didn't have the whole rhetoric that you have now from the European clubs about why was it being held in the summer. So you can see it benefited um, the Euro European clubs in some way. Now, it's been moved at the moment uh, for January, February, because in Africa, I had a, a lot of fans have been arguing about this online who probably don't know so much about um, the weather conditions across different seasons in Africa. But in Africa, the summer in sub-Saharan Africa is rainy season. Um, in a lot of African countries. So it wouldn't suit necessarily Cameroon for that being held in the summer. The weather conditions are better for it to be held in January, February, as we are seeing at the moment. And, and, and that's why, I mean, I guess they've gone ahead to move it back to January, February, as Cap, Cap did say, it involves the weather conditions. No, it's good for us to know, I think, just to sort of explain some things. I, you did mention some of the names of stars who will be playing in this tournament. I want to mention them here because it's got me excited just to read them. <laughs> Mohamed Salah, Sadio Mane, Riyad Mahrez, Akraf Hakimi, Victor Osman, Khalidou Koulibaly, Edward Mendy, yeah. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Wilfred Zaha, Carl Toko Akambi, Nabi Keita. There's a lot more than that, too. Yeah. And when you hear that, like that gets me fired up to watch these games. <laughs> what are some of the things you're most excited about seeing in this year's tournament yeah i mean that's a long long and wonderful list that you've mentioned um there and i and i tweeted about that i said that the africa cup of nations is a huge tournament for us and it can no longer be ignored it deserves the same sort of attention as other competitions are getting you just need to look throughout europe even in the premier league 
African players are making such a big impact. Um, so we deserve that attention and to be on such big platforms and people paying attention. But yeah, I mean, Cameroon. So it's being held in Cameroon this time around. I was in Cameroon back in 2016. I covered the Women's Africa Cup of Nations and I traveled around the country a little bit. Um, and what I can definitely say is the fans. The fans are incredible. Um, it's got such a rich um, vibrant football culture in Cameroon. They love their football. And they've, and they've of course, brought some mega stars out um, over the years from Cameroon, Samuel Eto'o being one of them, Roger Miller, etc. Um, so you can expect a really great ambiance, um, which is what I had when I was there in 2016 with the fans. You can expect a lot of that. Um, and just really a good time, um, you know, and the welcoming from the Cameroonian people as well, whilst you're over there, people can as well can taste some of the delights, the local meals that they have, so that's Dole, which is a traditional Cameroonian meal that I tried for the first time in 2016, and I, and I absolutely loved it. So apart from the fans and the ambiance and, and the welcome from the Cameroonian people, you can also see, as you've mentioned, that you, for example, you said you interviewed Didier Drogba, one of the Africa Cup of Nations, so you'll see the very best that African football has to offer some of the big stars, not just in Africa, but globally as well, that you can interact with, get some interviews as well as a journalist that sometimes <laughs> we wouldn't get, we wouldn't get the clubs don't give us access, but you get them <laughs> at the African combination. So you get to see that, you get to see some, you know, new talents um, that come out as well from the competition. So lots of things you can expect. My first World Cup that I watched uh, in detail was 1990. And so mm -hmm. I have a soft spot for Cameroon, which had a, a great tournament then and uh, just have continued following them over the years. So yeah, yeah, definitely excited to see the atmosphere around all of this. The, the defending champion is Algeria. But yeah. there are several teams that are capable of winning this tournament. I'm going to put some pressure on you here. <laughs> if you had to pick one team to win it all this time, who would it be and why? You know what? I, I, I got a couple of predi uh, predictions correct in the past. But the last few times I've been rubbish <laughs> my predictions. <laughs> so I'm not too sure if I want to fully predict one particular country. But of course, you mentioned Algeria there. They're the defending um, champions. They've gone, what, 33 games um, on beat and run at the moment. That's not considering the FIFA Arab Cup because it doesn't really get... Um, it, they don't calculate that into it. But what a great record that is for Algeria. So they're definitely one of the favorites um, on the list. Senegal as well. The finalists, as you know, um, against Algeria in 2019. And they're still looking for their first Africa um, Cup of Nations title. So never write off as well Senegal coming um, into the competition. I mean, not that one of the first African teams to qualify through to the playoffs or the World Cup um, World Cup playoffs for Africa in March. So they've got a pretty strong team. Of course, you've got your, your, your known names like the Sadio Manes, Khalidou Koulibaly, the Napoli defender that you mentioned as well, or even Edward Mendy, um, the goalkeeper. So I think they're not a team to, um, to write off at all. And of course, you also got to say um, Cameroon, they're playing at home in their country and they're going to have their fans, of course, supporting them. And I, I want to, and they're great. Those fans, you really feel them up in the stadium when you're there. I was there for the final in 2016 when Cameroon played against Nigeria. And 
what a great atmosphere that is. So never, never rule that out as well. Um, the home fans. And of course, I mean, I think Nigerian fans will be happy with me if I don't mention Nigeria somehow. <laughs> to try and stay positive in there. I would love to see, of course, Nigeria do really well. I think on paper, we've got fantastic individual players. It's just hoping that it can all come together um, as a team. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to write Nigeria off. <laughs> I was going to ask you if you're going to mention Nigeria. I'm glad you did there at the end. It's, <laughs> it's a fascinating team because like, obviously, as you mentioned, like there's so much talent there. There's also been a bit of upheaval. You know, recently they replaced their coach. They were the last team to announce a squad list for the tournament. What's your sense of, of what's going on with this Nigerian team and, and, and how it might impact them during this tournament? Well, there have been a couple more teams actually that have been announcing their squads even today, Zimbabwe, oh, etc. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But yes, I guess because Nigeria is one of the big ones people were waiting for for a long time. They're like, when are we going to announce? I was what everybody's announcing their squad. Well, I mean, you know, with Nigeria, you've got, what, over 200 million football fans. So they're also involved in all of this. <laughs> so a lot of football fans, when I posted the squad list that was announced on Christmas Day, a lot of fans were reacting to that. Um, mixed reactions, of course. People were like, why do we just have five midfielders and like 10 attacks? What's this? Like not the balance, et cetera, et cetera. But we have we have to wait and see. Like I said, individually, Nigeria have fantastic players. And I think the most important thing is that Nigerian football fans want to see how different is Auguste Negravant, as you mentioned, who's been announced as an interim coach to take Nigeria through to the Africa Cup of Nations. What's he going to do that's different from Gernot Rohr? Because Nigerian football fans were just really not happy with it, with Nigeria's playing style and tactics and lackluster performances, especially um, if you look losing at home to the Central African Republic. I mean, the headlines were, were very damning, losing at home or drawing against the Cape Verde or even giving away that lead um, to Sierra Leone, a 4-0 lead. So after that, especially after losing at home um, to the Central African Republic, I think Gernot Rohr, Days were numbered. Days were numbered in, in terms of the Nigerian Football Federation president Amadou Pinnick. He just wasn't happy with the performances as well as many of the football fans. So we have to give Augusto Negravon, who's led Nigeria before to a third place finish 15 years ago um, in Egypt. You know, as a former captain as well. So let's just see how how um, what he's able to do. That's different from Colonel Roar. It is some good news that Victor Osimhen's available for this tournament. Terrific forward for Napoli, who had a pretty severe facial injury not long yeah. ago, and there was concern yeah. about whether he would be available for the tournament. He is available, so that should be a positive there. I wanted to ask you about Cameroon. You mentioned Samuel Eto briefly earlier, former superstar for their country, obviously. He yeah. was recently elected federation president mm. in Cameroon, and I was wondering if you could just tell us a little about why Eto wanted the job. It's not like he needed to do it. And, and what he's hoping to do. Eto, Samuel Eto loves his country and his country loves him, especially when you see um, how he celebrated. I don't know if you saw the video when he had just been officially announced as yeah. winning the votes to become the next FA president. You just saw the emotion and passion and the love he has there. And when he goes around the country, he is 
the people's choice. Um, so Samuel Eto'o even tweeted after that that it was one of the greatest achievements, if not the greatest achievement in his life. And, you know, he's, he's a former player. He knows what it's like. He's seen it, not just on the page, but, be, but, but behind the scenes. And one of the things he's talked about is stamping out corruption. Um, he's spoken a lot about that. And he's talk, talking about bringing it to the center, bringing it back to football for the players, better pay for them. He also spoke about building like 10 new stadiums as well, women's football. Um, I know he's got a great relationship um, as well in terms of the women's team and some of the players. So I think he could bring a lot of that, bringing a lot of hope. You, you see, he wants to bring changes in the areas that I've, I've mentioned to you. You mentioned women's football, and I know that you have covered a lot of women's soccer over the years as well. What is the state of African women's soccer and its growth right now from your perspective? Yes, I mean, as I'm sure as I'm sure you as well know from seeing women's football in Africa doesn't get the same amount of tension as the men's game. Um, now, there have been efforts um, over the past few years by the Confederation of African Football to change that um, a little bit. And we saw recently um, the first ever um, edition of the Women's African Champions League, which was very much welcomed um, by many of the female players as well. Um, so that's going in the right direction because that's regular game time as well for the women's game. So not just Desiree Ellis, a South African women's national team coach, Banyana Banyana, she spoke about, she told me at the Women's World Cup in, in France, um, how it's not just coming for qualifiers, it's having regular games being played. And this is a good way to hopefully go in that direction and go from eight, eight teams to possibly expanding to have more women's team taking part. And what was so beautiful to see in that competition, for example, um, Hazaka's ladies had Evelyn Badu, um, one of their star players in the squad. And, you know, they're one of the finalists for that. She, off the back of that, has now gone to Norway. Um, so you can see talents coming through from, from that. And, um, yeah, so CAF really did really great social media profiles to bring a lot of attention um, in that sense to the women's game. And we saw teams like the Higa Queens of Kenya um, who had qualified and they rely a lot within the community uh, you know, young female players and bringing them through the ranks or Malibu Kings of Equatorial Guinea. They're a team that just, what, created just a few years ago. I think it was about, what, three or so years ago. So it's just wonderful stories that you can see from that and hopefully building more on that um, in the women's game, getting more attention. And, I've, and I, I mentioned that as well just before kickoff, prize money as well. Yeah. Decent pay for these women players. We need, we need to have all of that. I'm giving them the due, due attention needed. No, it's exciting to see what's happening at, with women's football at the club level in Africa and also at the national team level. And it goes even to the top of the pyramid. I, you know, I would love to see a club women's world cup organized by yeah. FIFA get going. Yeah. And if you have continental championships, you can start thinking about doing that. Yeah. And then, and then also there's going to be 32 teams in the next women's world cup. So that's going to increase the number of African teams too. And hopefully an incentive to continue building national teams there. Going back to the this AFCON tournament, are you going to have any role in, in covering it for the BBC? How's that going to work? Uh, are you hoping to, to get a, on site even? Yes. Yeah, so the BBC, uh, along with Sky, have 
um, bought the rights um, um, for, for some of the African Cup of Nations matches and definitely as well we'll be watching the semis and the final. I mean, the last here here in the UK, the last tournament in 2019 in Egypt, I I was the I am um, I guess I, you could say I was the face of BBC World um, in terms of covering the Africa Cup of Nations from the semis to the final. So we're going to have like a big team on the ground across TV, radio, digital, just to get as much reach as possible and give, you know, give it the attention that it needs. And as well, you know, again, when you cover the Africa Cup of Nations, you, of course you cover the results, but there are always wonderful stories around it, like the fans and et cetera, and the journeys of how people got there that also make it interesting because at the end of the day it is as well for the fans now i always like to ask my guests about their story with the sport of soccer football how did you first get connected to the sport well let's say i was i won't say i was a great player necessarily i used to play indoor football um when i came to the uk from nigeria it was too cold for me to play outside <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I'm going to stick indoor. But I almost regret that somebody didn't push me to follow through to play a bit more seriously outdoors um, football. But no, I just enjoyed it. Um, I, I always watched football, even when I was back in Nigeria um, as a local growing up. One of my favorite African players was Rashidi Yakini. Mm. Um, to me, he was just this, you know, when you're a little girl, you just watch this big giant that would just bang in all those, all those goals. So I, I, I looked. I looked up to Rashidi Yakini, and one of the big regrets in my career as a journalist is I never got to interview him before he died. And I, I had tried a few years back when I was in Nigeria before his death, but it, it never happened. Um, so, yeah, I always followed the game. My my uncle back in Nigeria, may so rest in peace, played semi-professionally back in Nigeria. So maybe somehow, I guess, that connection it just got me interested in in um football and African football. <laughs> so, I, I yeah. love that 94 Nigeria team at the World Cup here in the United States with Rashidi Yakini. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And just still remember the chance they had to, they should have beaten Italy uh, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and didn't in the end, but uh, just a, a fantastic team. In terms of your story in the media business, how did that transpired. I, I used to work for, I don't know if you know, ITV News, ITN oh, here yeah. in the UK. Yeah. So um, I guess, yeah. So I'm even trying to figure out how I got there before I even got there. I was studying at university and um, I always loved news. Uh, and, I, and I kind of blame my mom for that because growing up in Nigeria, Nigerians absorbed news so much. So there was always news in the background so I kind of got interested in TV I guess that way and um, I thought I'm just going to give it a go let me see how I get on <laughs> I didn't think I was going to get very far you just don't because at the time there weren't any role models to look up to to be honest and opportunities for us are not like it is nowadays let's be honest in the mainstream so I just never knew how far I was going to go with it but I just enjoyed it so I applied for CNN actually to do an internship at CNN whilst I was studying Never in a million years did I think I was going to get it. I'm like, I'm never going to get it. But, you know, just give it a go. And I, I got I got it. I got shortlisted to do a, a, an oral interview and then a written and I passed. And then my intern, I was one of five people or so, five or six people out of over 200 applicants who got it, who got in. So it was great. It was a great experience um, in London. And then as well, I worked at um, ITV News. And then from there, I met somebody who, and I covered the Champions League. I helped out. I mean, I didn't cover it. I helped preparations behind the scenes for the for the journalists. I was a young journalist coming along. And then somebody I met there said, why don't you 
go to this Pan-African channel that's new and developing and you could do cover more in Africa because that was my interest and I wasn't really covering much of that working for ITV News and I just wanted to cover positive stories about my continent and through sport I used to play sport myself I'd won like medals and trophies playing volleyball in my younger days I was better nice. <laughs> So um, I went to Pan-African Channel and boom, they threw me in the deep end to be a producer, producing their, their football program. And yeah, and then from there, we, we, we made a very conscious effort. We're like, we're going to cover differently from everybody else. We're going to give African players a platform. They don't ha- it's, it wasn't like how it is nowadays, to be honest with you. When I did it, we were wrapping on like African players. They contribute a lot, like really positive. And over the years, people started paying attention and giving the same narrative that we were doing. Mm -hmm. So that's how I kind of came into the field, like making a a conscious effort to give a a positive stories and through sport of of our continent. Now we have a lot of aspiring journalists who listen Mm -hmm. to our show. What sort of advice would you have for anyone who's young and wants to do what you do? You know, um, believe in yourself. I know it sounds, it sounds, oh yeah, it's easy to say, but really this industry is tough and it's through, it has lots of ups and downs and lots of hurdles. And I can also say that we women, whether we're sports journalists or not in the industry, can sometimes doubt ourselves more so than necessarily I've seen some of my male colleagues and doubt our abilities. And I feel I was one of those people for the longest time ever, Grant. And I would honestly say that it was just maybe in the past two years that I started believing in my abilities and saying, you know what, I deserve to be here, just like the rest of my colleagues. And I bring something different. I bring a different voice, a different angle. So that's why I would say, Believe in yourself, because when I started this journey of African football, there weren't any women, that many women doing it. Uh, And that was many years ago. And it wasn't so hip and cool as it is now. But I stuck to my lane and I was like, I'm not going to do what everybody else is doing. I'm going to bring something different and authentic. So be your authentic self as well and believe that your story or whatever you think it might be different to somebody else, it's fine. It's a different angle. It's a different perspective. We don't all need to be saying the same thing. You can bring a different side to the story. So that's the advice that I would give to people. And I would also say have a great support network because, as I said, it's a tough industry. And if you don't have that, there'll be days where you feel like you want to quit. Honestly, I've had those days myself. But I had a great support network that made me believe, no, don't quit. And it's a job that's very public. You're in the public eye. You sometimes will get criticism and it can be tough to swallow. Um, and I've had to, as I got sometimes the criticism, it helped to shape me to be who I am. I've had people tell me, go back to the kitchen. What do women know about sport and like blogs or stuff or people would twist things that you say when you don't mean it that way. So you've really got to have that great support network, believe in yourself You don't even need to get noticed nowadays by starting in major platforms. I didn't. You could even start on your Instagram. I've seen people, you know, look at Arsenal Fan TV and how they come and, you know, the great work that they're doing. So stuff like that. Thank you for sharing all of that. That's just really (laughs) interesting, useful stuff, I think, for for people who want to get into the business. It's interesting that you, you say you only had 
got more confidence in yourself in the last couple of years because you've been doing this for a while and doing it extremely well. You've interviewed a lot of famous figures, including in the soccer football world over the years. Who have been some of your favorites and why? Yeah, I'm trying to think because, as you said, I've interviewed quite a quite a few. Um, I I found it interesting interviewing, for example, like people like DJ Drogba, person that you've interviewed yourself. <laughs> so yeah. Just about how he used, um, I guess, his power, how well he was known and how well he was doing while playing at Chelsea in his country and, and the conflict that they had and using that voice. And you just really saw how powerful sport is. And I'd interviewed him in the past about that. So he's definitely one of the people that I've I've enjoyed um, interviewing. And another one that I've also enjoyed interviewing is another, I guess, I've won player, Wilfred Zaha. Now, mm-hmm. the only reason why I say that is, um, I guess maybe sometimes... I bring my own, I don't try to be anybody else. I try to just be me in my job and in what I do. And Wilfred Zaha is somebody I've interviewed in the past, but one interview in particular I did with him, it went viral. It went hmm. everywhere um, across the UK and globally was a couple of seasons ago. I asked him about his failed transfer bid from Crystal Palace to Everton. Mm-hmm. Now I was just being myself, my cameraman slash producer, um, also comes out of sport. We just, you know, sat with him before the interview. Informally, we spoke about African football, football and ups and downs of African football. So he got comfortable, and it's somebody that I know and he's spoken to before. And he was comfortable enough off the back of that when we had an informal chat. So when the camera started rolling, just be honest that he hadn't scored as many goals the previous season because his head was all over the place because he wanted to move and it destabilized him. So it was. Amazing hearing a footballer being so honest and open in an interview. And it was literally just a chat like I was having with a friend. So next thing I know, it became viral. So it was stuff like that. And like people, of course, like kind of one quote from my country and the work that he's done with the Heart Foundation, um, helping um, young children and adults suffering with heart conditions. Samuel, um, um, I've got my brain is um, Salomon Kalu, sorry, for a second, Salomon Kalu as well, the work that he's doing with hospitals um, uh, as well, and dialysis, kidney problems in his country. So it's, I love seeing footballers doing something out of what you expect them, which is playing football, giving back to their countries. No, that makes total sense. It sounds like I was going to ask you about some of your approaches to doing an interview because you do them so often, you do them with, with really famous people, athletes. Yeah. What are some of those approaches? So um, contacts and relationships are incredibly, I'm sure you know this as well, Grant. (laughs) Relationships are incredibly important in our industry. Um, So I have built my contacts and relationships with players over the years, um, for many, many years, and people learn to trust you. So I'm not out, I'm not out to trick them for a line or for a headline, and they feel very comfortable. So a lot of them say to me, they trust me. Um, so that helps sometimes in them being able to open up to you like Zaha did um, about about issues. And I, I for, even though I know player, I will prepare myself for interviews. Research is very important. I just don't go and think I know everything. Um, I'll have my own questions, but it's always good to tap into the brains of other people. So I'll also ask my colleagues, what do you think? What questions do you think I should ask? 
or people that might know or talk with even better than me sometimes, what do you think I should ask? So collectively, you bring all of that um, into an interview. So one last question for you. Do you ever get to the United States, Mimi? Have you ever been here for work? Do you ever come just to vacation? Yeah, I've got family in the United States. I've been to the US a few times in the past. Um, I would love to go back. It's been a while. I think maybe the last time I went to the US was five years ago. I think you're based in New York. I've been to New York before. I love yeah. New York. I absolutely love New York. Um, the food, the shopping. Um, so yeah, I, I would love to go back someday, but I don't know when, Grant, but it's definitely on my list. Well, let's make it sooner rather than later. <laughs> Mimi Fawaz is a broadcaster for the BBC. She will be covering the Africa Cup of Nations, which starts January 9th. Mimi, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. Many thanks to Mimi Fawaz. And we're back for segment three with Chris Whittingham with our predictions for 2022 in the soccer world. Chris is back with his fanfare again. So I'm going to start with my five predictions in order for soccer in 2022. Number five Angel City takes the NWSL to a new level recognition-wise and wins the NWSL title in its first season. Wow, that, that really took a turn towards the end there. Wins the title in their first season. Wow. Have I, you, I, have I, you seen their honest, team yet? Uh, you know what? I was, looking at the, I was looking the other day at the team that San Diego has. They're going to be pretty decent, too. I think that the two new expansion teams this year are going to come in and make a real noise in NWSL. Yeah, I think so too. I think they're both going to be good. But what Angel City is doing is extremely impressive. You look at the number of season tickets they've sold. Last I saw was around 11,000. Wow. You you know, they're going to be playing in a cool environment. They're going to bring a buzz, I think, to the NWSL that this league hasn't seen before. Obviously, Portland has a tremendous fan base. They're the best supported women's club in the world. But Angel City has this whole Hollywood thing behind it that I think is going to become a thing uh, and and drive interest around this team. And I think they're putting together a team on the field that is going to do quite well. And yes, I'm going out on a limb and saying they're going to win the league, but why not? It's prediction time. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're you're certainly right about all those other factors you look at natalie portman's one of the owners i think all of the celebrity contacts are going to be called we're going to have cutaways to incredibly famous people in the stands they're going to make headlines uh, i also by the way you mentioned uh, best supported in terms of uh, portland i also want to give a shout out to the liga mekis femenil final between tigres and monterrey uh sold out stadiums el volcan and at monterrey as well those are great scenes and it's really cool that uh south of the border there's some development in the women's game as well but you're right i think this team is going to draw a ton of headlines and a ton of interest in 2022 all right number four liverpool and their men's team and barcelona and their women's team win the uefa champions league so follow me on this one I don't think Liverpool is going to win the Premier League. I think Man City is going to win it. Uh, I almost think the sort of impending knowledge that Man City is going to win the Premier League is going to cause Liverpool to slightly shift their focus and win the Champions League. They've been terrific in Champions League this season, and I think they're very capable of winning this tournament. I do think a team from England is going to win it. I don't think 
We've had this discussion before that PSG is going to, despite their Galacticos-type roster. Um, but I, I do think Liverpool, which has obviously won the Champions League fairly recently, uh, they're my pick to win it. And if you haven't watched Barcelona's women's team, they're the defending European champion, and they are taking the women's club game to new levels on the field. They are just destroying everybody, especially in Spain, but also in Europe as well. And I don't see anyone. I'd love to see Lyon give them a run. Maybe they will. But Barcelona is just playing amazing soccer. So check them out if you can. It's a lot easier to watch the UEFA Women's Champions League these days on DAZN. Uh, so those are my predictions. Yeah, so Barcelona, first off, great shot. I'd actually love to see a Club World Cup in the women's game. There's one oh, yeah. in the men's game, uh, but a Club World Cup in the women's game I think would be really interesting. Full-on group stage. It can really turn it into a big event and hopefully become like a showpiece event in an Olympics and World Cup off year. Uh, so I'd love to see that. Just I'd love to see that Barcelona team come up against some of the NWSL teams, although maybe with expansion we'll see maybe kind of a more an evening out of the quality throughout the league, but maybe not those super teams that can go up against Barcelona. But you're absolutely right. The, the Champions League final that they played last year against Chelsea was flabbergastingly good. Like, they are a dominant team. So I think that's an easy one. And I'm actually going to give away my number five prediction as a means of retorting your number four. I think Bayern Munich are going to win the Champions League. I, 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 I really like just the way that they look in the Bundesliga, the way that they've adapted to to Julian Nagelsmann's system. They've come through COVID towards the beginning of the year. I just, I love the way that they play. I think they're the most dominant team in Europe in their respective league. Man City, unfortunately, I don't think that a lot of people are going to be picking them to win this competition until they do it, just because they slip at the final hurdles so often. They did so against Lyon in the quarterfinal in the bubble. They did so last year against Chelsea in the final. And I just don't think people trust them. We should be predicting them to win the Champions League, but they're just not going to earn that respect until they actually go on and win the damn thing. But I, I'll go for Bayern as my team to win the Champions League. So I've got three more predictions, and I'm going to save my two men's World Cup predictions for the last two. Number three, I'll stay in the women's game. Katarina Macario becomes the best player on the U.S. women's national team. <laughs> You've been on this corner for a while. Tell tell the people about Katarina Mercario. You know, I, I saw the Guardian's list of the you know their whole survey of the best hundred women's players in the world this past year, and I think Mercario is like way way too low. I don't know if she was like an eighty or ninety or something like that. I think she could be the best player in the world in two years. I really do. Uh, and she's at a team, Lyon, that. Maybe has been superseded by Barcelona in the last year, but they've won six out of the last 10 European titles. They still have an amazing roster. She's starting every game. She's playing out of position as a midfielder because she's filling in for uh, the injured Amel Majri. Uh, but she's a number nine. That's what she's going to be eventually. But she's still making a huge impact, still scoring goals. She's just 22, and she's getting better literally every day over there. And I think it's being under-recognized for different reasons in the media, partly this year because uh, there was so much focus on the older players on the U.S. women's national team, Carly Lloyd retiring, and you still had players using a lot of oxygen like Megan Rapino and Alex Morgan. Macario didn't play much at the Olympics. 
again, the U.S. hasn't has played her mostly in midfield, which is not her best position. I was really excited recently to see Vladko Andonovsky say that he wants to use her as a false nine because I think that's where she'll be most impactful on the field. Uh, including for the U.S., I think she's going to start becoming really impactful for the U.S. over this next year she gets those opportunities. Is the issue not, though, that both at club level and at national team level, there are incumbents that right now are kind of blocking her path towards that? I mean, just the sheer number of forwards that the U.S. has, I mean, you know, she'll certainly get her chances just because of the volume of games that the national team plays. But I, I, I do wonder, I mean, first off, you can only really announce yourself in the women's game, in my opinion, by either, you know, winning the Champions League at club level and being a big reason why, or being a huge part of a World Cup team. So that, and that's still to come for the U.S. But yeah, I, I do wonder if maybe the incumbents are in her way. I mean, the big question is going to be, I think, moving forward, who starts Alex Morgan or Katarina Macario mm-hmm. at number, at the nine uh, for the U.S. And I do think over the next year, I think Alex Morgan probably realizes this too, is that th- like incumbent is only going to go so far. You're going to have to produce. And I think it's going to be challenging for Alex Morgan to hold off Katarina Macario from starting at the number nine, because I don't think Vlad Kandinovsky is going to be just all about politics or anything here. It's going to come down to who's the best player for the position. And if there is a competition, what Macario is doing week after week with Leon, to be honest, at club level, it's already been better than what we've been seeing from Alex Morgan. Next up, I got a couple of men's World Cup picks. This is a men's World Cup year ahead, and that will become the major story of the year. The first one, or number two, I guess, of my five is Brazil wins the men's World Cup. And there's going to be people in Europe, largely, who laugh at me because of that prediction. And... I will say this. I think this is going to be a pretty big measuring stick of a World Cup in the sense that we have seen European teams get a pretty big gap on the rest of the world, including on South America. You know, a a non-European team hasn't won the World Cup since 2002 when Brazil last won it. But I do think that despite that gap that we've seen that the gap between this brazil team and and the european teams is not nearly as big as people think it is and in fact i think brazil will show in this tournament that they're they're going to be the world champions i'm i'm going out on a limb here and saying that it's kind of weird when you say brazil which has won more world cups than any country in history <laughs> some underdog the plucky underdogs <laughs> exactly but I, i'm gonna say it and, and i think it's gonna change how we view neymar uh, hmm. and it's gonna change his legacy and and put brazil back in the conversation as the greatest soccer country of all time so I want so I, I do think that certainly they are head and shoulders above everyone else in South America. The way that they qualify, they are unstoppable. It's amazing because we people have called that the most difficult place to qualify from in the world. That tournament is a cauldron, especially in the tight windows that they're playing now. It's ridiculous what they've done. One Copa America, like they're clearly the best team in South America. They but win I just, Copa America, Chris. Oh, well, excuse me. Yes, they, they did not. Did, did, did they win one of the 47 that were played in the preceding years? I think they did, didn't they? Didn't they win in, in, in 19? They did. They did win uh, yeah, two okay. Copas ago. 
Yeah, so they, they've, they, they're in a good spot in South America. I think it's pretty clear that they're the best team in the continent. However, I do think that could be the resulting of a drop in the level of the other teams in South America. It, despite the fact that Argentina won it, I don't think that's a great Argentina team. And just in terms of the level of talent that they have, it's certainly more balanced than it's ever been. And uh, Scaloni, their manager, has done a better job of balancing out that team. But talent-wise, I, I don't think that's a great Argentina team. And you look at Colombia's had a, c- a couple of really good World Cups in a row. They cannot score a goal to save their lives in recent times in South American World Cup qualifying. I just don't think those countries are at the same level anymore. So I'll be curious, once they do get to the World Cup if they can rise to the level of where the European teams are. I have to be honest, in my predictions, I have not come up with a team that I think is going to win the World Cup yet just because I, I just, I, I don't know. I'm not, I don't think I'm ready for that yet. We've had too much football for me uh, to really have a strong feeling about that. I honestly might have said Italy after the Euros just because of how well they play, but they might not even make the damn thing. So uh, I, I'm going I'm to take a bit more time to figure out who I think is going to win this thing. My last prediction, the U.S. men's national team makes a quarterfinal run at World Cup 22. <laughs> Now, I think this is going to be viewed as a springboard to 2026, and I get that that's sort of the long arc of the storyline that tournament's going to be in the United States, but I also think we should view this World Cup sort of as a discrete event for this U.S. team, and while they sometimes can be frustrating in CONCACAF to fans, and I get it, you know, they still struggle to to get points at times in Central America, and you're like, what's going on here? I think the World Cup is a completely different soccer challenge than qualifying in CONCACAF is. And I actually think because so many of these U- young U.S. players play for top clubs in Europe, that it's almost an easier adjustment to play in a World Cup in those conditions against top teams. And I think that they'll perform well. I think they have a high upside And I think not only will the U.S. qualify for the quarterfinals and the final eight of this World Cup, they will deserve to have gotten there through their performances. Well, I I certainly do think that if they're going to do that, they'll want to win out in World Cup qualifying just because it gives you a better chance of being in that pot one. I think they'll want to be a pot one team if they're going to get all the way. Although I will say, we agree on a prediction. That was my fourth. That was my fourth prediction. The U.S. will make it to a quinto partido, but Mexico will not. <laughs> it's another year out in the round of 16 for Mexico. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's um, it's an interesting one. that We talk about the, the seeds. I don't think the U.S. has a shot at getting in pot one. I just don't see them getting into the top seven of, of the FIFA rankings. I know that one of the teams above them will not qualify either Portugal or Italy, so that helps a little bit, but that would require... I just don't see the U.S. winning out in CONCACAF, and um, and I still think that, that that's not a huge issue. I think getting in pot two is a very achievable thing and is an issue because the U.S. does want to be in a position where it's sort of viewed seed-wise as in the top two to advance from its group. And they're in that spot right now. They're 11th ranked. I know people make fun of the FIFA rankings, but they actually do have an impact on whether you're a seeded team for the draw or not. So that's a pretty big deal. And then if you end up advancing from the group, 
you just got to win one game to get to the quarterfinals. And I think this U.S. team is capable of, of pulling out a big performance. Yeah, so if you look at the FIFA World Rankings right now, I don't know how one acquires points, but I know that there are only five raw points behind the Netherlands, six behind Denmark, and 12 behind Portugal. Uh, they're like fractions above Germany in the World Cup rankings right now. So, I mean, look, given the bizarre way that these things work, like if the U.S. is a good start to 2022, I do think there's a chance that they go up the rank. Rankings, but you're right. It's probably an outside chance. But either way, I think they get to a fifth game and Mexico does not. And I'd actually be really curious heading into next year how Mexico performs in World Cup qualifiers because the way that they ended the November window, not great. Losing to Canada, losing to the U.S. I think they dropped points in Panama as well. It has not been a good run. Tata Martino is under pressure, and he's going to have to get things turned around. What do you got with your predictions, Chris? All right, so I've already given two of them. Uh, in terms of Quinto Partido and in terms of Bayern Munich winning the Champions League. So I go to number three. Both Lorenzo Insigne and Belotti of Torino go to Toronto FC, ushering a new era of MLS transfers. And look, it's it's been in the press. It's been reported that Insigne is close to done, and they're going after uh, Belotti as well. I mean, these are, first off, the figures being thrown around for their salaries are incredible. And I do not doubt Fabrizio Romano's reporting for one second just in terms of the ask for Insigne. But it's bonkers what Toronto is up to. And I actually think in all the talk that we've, that we've you know mentioned about the big clubs in MLS and LAFC coming in and spending money and all these, Atlanta coming in and spending a, a money, Toronto have been here. And I don't think they get enough credit. Mostly, I, I think, because they're north of the border. But they have not gotten enough credit for what they've spent over the years to try and be a big club. Now, mostly it hasn't worked. But they've got Bob Bradley in charge now. They're bringing in... I, in my opinion, Lorenzo Insigne, in terms of where he is, in, it, where he is in his career, would probably be the best player that's ever come to MLS. Just in terms of marrying their arc of their career, their current level, and their age. And I think that Insigne would just be a ridiculous transfer for this league. And kind of because I, I wonder how much the league is kind of well. Let's not break the spending barrier. I wonder if all of a sudden there's a slew of teams that come behind him and say, "Hey, to compete, we're going to go after guys." 29, 30, 31, rather than 33, 34, 35. And maybe they're not the biggest names, but they're really good players at really big levels. And we're just going to blow these guys away with money. And rather than having guys in the last legs of their career, players still somewhat either in their prime or on the bottom end of their prime coming into this league and playing incredibly well. I think Toronto this year are going to be a massive story in Major League Soccer. I'm really fascinated to follow Toronto. I mean, no team in MLS has a history like Toronto does of paying above market salaries for big name players. And sometimes that's been American players like Michael Bradley and Josie Altidore who came back earlier than they probably planned from Europe because they were being paid above market salaries in Toronto. Or if you even look at the attempts that were started when Tim Lywicky came to Toronto, you had Jermaine Defoe, which didn't work, but they got him for a while. Sebastian Jovinko, which did work quite well. Uh, and, you know, they have this history of, of paying big money for players more than they would probably get in other places. And I would actually say overall, yes, they were terrible last year, but like this is the best, I would argue the best team in Major League Soccer history, the one that won the MLS title and got nearly won the, the CONCACAF Champions League. 
uh, just a couple of years ago. So I, I think they've actually shown recently, Toronto, that this strategy can work and produce championship teams. Bob Bradley is going to be the coach. Michael Bradley is going to be like the de facto assistant coach, I think. He might still play. Um, speaks Italian, by the way. And I, I think it's going to be a really interesting team to follow. I still think it's going to be difficult for them to challenge to win a title in, in Bradley year one for a couple of reasons. They were truly awful last Horrendous. season. And so that's a lot to ask in terms of the delta there from one season to the next. And also because it sounds like even if they get these guys from Italy, they won't until mid-season. So it's going to take some time for chemistry to develop there and all that. You also have a shortened season because of the World Cup. Like we're we're talking about right. being in the playoffs in October, and if they don't get here until July, I think July 10 is usually when the window opens. So they're they're missing most of the year. But if I, if they can pull off, especially the Insignia signing, I I think this is going to be a very watchable team. Yeah, and by the way, five and a half year contract reported for Lorenzo Insignia. That is insane. All right, number two, Gianni Infantino pitches a World Cup every year. <laughs> I'm mostly kidding, but I mean, look, we you never know what cockamamie idea is going to come uh, from FIFA and from the powers that be in the global game. I've got nothing right. to say on this one. Number one. It, I, it wasn't meant to be in this order. I was adjusting to, to what you were throwing at me, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick my neck out on this one. Ralph, Ralph Ranić will leave Manchester United in the summer. I don't think it's going to work for him at Manchester United. Uh, you're, you saw the seeds of that in their away draw to Newcastle. They've got a lot of problems there. I'm not sure his philosophy really bre- really blends with Manchester United, and I think that they're going to go a different direction come the summer. He's meant to stay on in this consultancy role. I think it goes poorly enough that he doesn't stay at Manchester United. You know what? Like, I liked your fanfare for this one. Uh, like, like With Ralph Rangnick, so far, there's reason to sort of wonder there's a lot of soccer yet to be played, so I, I think we'll have enough for an answer there. But if you pay him off in the summer and it hasn't gone very well, I don't, you know, okay, I'm with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I saw this tremendous tweet from Barney Rone of The Guardian who was talking about, like, just how bizarre this Manchester United team are. And if you tried, you would never put this assembly of players together. He said, Manchester United is such an odd bunch of objects chucked together. Ralph Ranić, Cristiano Ronaldo, Fred, Harry Maguire, a cat, three rubber bands, the 4-2-2 system. Nobody would ever deliberately design this thing. And I cannot think of something that summed up Manchester United better than that tweet. Yeah, it's a good one. I mean, I, I would just say if they can get like Mauricio Pochettino to come in, it sounds like Poch isn't particularly enjoying his time at PSG. Who would coaching PSG? That, you know, like, I'm still surprised they didn't get Antonio Conte, to be honest. Yeah. If they can get Poach to come in, that would be a weird fit with Ralph Rangnick anyway. And so I could see, like, you know, the closest thing to house cleaning possible, where if you're going to want to play Pochettino's style, you want to, you know, bring in players who can do that. Yeah. And uh, the Antonio Conte thing, by the way, the way that Spurs have looked since he did that, that was fast. I was really fast and how, how quickly he's getting them turned around. I would, even though Arsenal are playing really re- well right now, I would kind of make them uh, a co-favorites with Arsenal to be 
that that fourth place team in the Premier League this year. I think Spurs have been tremendous since he's taken over. And you're right. They completely messed that one up by hanging on to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for an extra month and all this nonsense. He's a mercenary, this and that. Antonio Conte would have gotten that situation straightened out. He is an amazing club manager that I don't think has gotten enough credit for what he did at Inter and what he's done throughout his career. This is an amazing coach, and Spurs are lucky to have him. I hope we get some crack reporters over in the UK who can sort of like report what happened with Man United and Antonio Conte because I haven't really seen a reason about like why that didn't happen or you know, anything compelling to show like the inside of, of all of that. But uh, Chris, man, it, it's been an absolute pleasure doing this podcast with you this year. And um, I wish you a happy new year and a, and a wonderful 2022. Thanks, Grant. And uh, looking forward to potting on all things soccer. The Land and Wall and Witty podcast will be back next year. Uh, January window will be warm in San Diego and Miami. You'll be freezing in Minneapolis, Columbus, and Hamilton, Ontario. It's going to be fantastic and uh, looking forward to it. I've already got my parker ready for a very, very frigid enough trip. jackets in the world for you. Oh, goodness. It will be interesting. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Thanks to everyone for listening to Football with Grant Wall all year long. I want to thank Mimi Fawaz as well as Chris Whittingham, producer and pundit. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. Really appreciate your support with that. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year.